My favorite poem that I've ever written is probably a little poem called The Song of the Taste, which is about ecology, the food chain, what we have to eat to live by, death, and sacrament. There is no life without causing death. And all of us eventually become food for something else as well. We are all at this wonderful feast, and we are also the meal. So how to see that? Nature read in tooth and claw, or an original kind of sinful evil that causes us to have to live in a condition of pain and bloodshed? So how do we come to terms with it? See it as implying you know, some profound and mysterious set of relationships that transcend birth and death. And I tried to sum up how one might come to that in one small poem. Eating the living germs of grasses, rice, and wheat. Eating the ova of large birds. The fleshy sweetness packed around the sperm of swaying trees, apples. The muscles of the flanks and thighs of soft-voiced cows. The bounce in the lamb's leap. The swish in the ox's tail. Eating roots grown swole inside the soil. Drawing on life of living. Clustered points of light spun out of space. Hidden in the grape. Eating each other's seed. Eating each other. Kissing the lover in the mouth of bread, lip to lip. If you're talking about Snyder as a poet, I think this is one of his supreme accomplishments. He developed a style of writing that was in harmony with his style of life. I variously call this style a walking style, a hiking style, a running style, what I'd like to do at this point is read a couple of poems that illustrate this style. And the title of the first poem is Water. And it describes a hike. The way the poetry is written is in a sense in a hiking rhythm. Pressure of sun on the rock slide. Whirled me in dizzy hop and step descent. Pool of pebbles buzzed in a juniper shadow. Tiny tongue of a this year rattlesnake flicked. I leaped, laughing for little boulder color coil. Pounded by heat, raced down the slabs to the creek, deep tumbling under arching walls, and stuck whole head and shoulders in the water. Stretched full on cobble, ears roaring, eyes open aching from the cold, and faced a trout. Now the end of the poem is also important. It's the end of the journey. The end of the journey in this particular poem, a kind of cross-species communication between trout and human. My original engagement with what is now called environmentalism was with what we used to call the conservation movement. Anyone who has concern in these areas comes to that concern through a personal experience of intimacy with the natural world and with an intuition of the moral worth of non-human beings, not just wildlife, but watersheds, streams, soils. And that personal engagement translates for some people 
into political or cultural activism. My early poems reflect a process of being in the natural world intimately and physically and seeing myself as a natural being in a natural world, which indeed we are. So it's not ideological. It's a presentation of the performance of nature. And that's all it needs to be. As a poet, I actually believe that the less obvious way of saying it is in the long run, the more effective way. But it doesn't necessarily sink in in the first decade. It might take three or four decades to sink into the culture. So political poetry is archetypal poetry that works on the deep mind of the culture. In the first week in May, 1956, he got on a boat in San Francisco Harbor and took off for Japan. This astounded most of his friends. It would be as if someone, just after the Berlin Wall fell, said, I am leaving Berlin and I'm going to Tibet to study Buddhism. You're doing what? Things are just opening up. Snyder's friend said to him, look, the walls of the Eisenhower complacency are falling. For heaven's sakes, stay here, join us. I think Snyder had a very interesting vision at that point. He knew that long-term change comes about as a result of a disciplined, sustained practice, way of behaving in the world. Therefore, if Buddhism is going to be the model, he needed to go where the Buddhists naturally are. Well, I'm not obsessed with ideas as such, with messages as such, but with knowing and being uh, in the world, and this is where poetry helps, to a way of knowing the world and being in the world that makes their sense of engagement with others and engagement with nature more than just a moral message, a moral ought, but something that arises from within in terms of their own genuine feelings about themselves and about the world. So there's a difference there between, quote, say, doing right because you ought to and because you've been told to, as against doing right because that's what you want to do. Compassion for the world and for nature ultimately must come from within. And that's the difference between the morality proposed by the Judeo-Christian tradition and the moral view of the Buddhist and ancient animist way of seeing, where experience of yourself and of the world is what guides you. On the shelf, uh, you can see we have paperbacks, uh, Rip Rap and Cold Mountain Poems, for instance. Uh, Men ask the way to Cold Mountain. Cold Mountain, there's no through trail. In summer, ice doesn't melt. The rising sun blurs in swirling fog. Oh, well, something like this would be a couple dollars. But if you really want to see something of Gary Snyder's that's of value, this is Gary Snyder's rarest book. Because Snyder is one of the preeminent counterculture poets, sky's the limit. I was an icon, perhaps, for the counterculture youth culture. As late as the late 70s, American society has gone onward through its many changes and transformations since then. However, you know, what I'm doing now, both in prose and poetry, is grappling with some of the main ideas of Western civilization and 
you know, wrestling with it, you know, from my heart and soul toward the direction that I would hope they would go, uh, toward a direction that includes a moral concern for non-human beings and goes beyond the idea of economies and nations dominated by simple greed. There is no counterbalance at this point in the world to capitalism, except Islamic fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism. It's only the fundamentalisms at the moment that stand against the idea that everybody owes themselves the most they can get. Not just greed, but a kind of a loose canon individualism that's been turned loose on us all, with no sense of civic responsibility, no sense of obligation even to each other, let alone the natural world. How do we counter that? We have to remind ourselves that we really do have values ourselves without being fundamentalists. The language of values has been stolen, you know, by fundamentalists. And so the old sort of liberal humanistic mind has got to get its footing again and talk about uh, responsibilities and community and context uh, and taking uh, on the place that you live, taking on the family and the community that you're in and living in it and then extending the meaning of that community to the non-human members as well. That's what I'm working on. I understand that everything in the natural world is connected to everything else, and I never thought about that before I met Gary. You can read about it, but knowing him, you see someone actually living in the natural world intimately and lovingly. I'm not terribly optimistic, and I never have been terribly optimistic, but perhaps the willing energy that I bring to these things gives people the notion that I'm optimistic. One has to be a Buddhist to be able to laugh at impermanence. You know, to have a sense of humor, ultimately, about the ultimate meaninglessness of everything and still have the good spirit to work on behalf of saving mice or chipmunks, say. Working Trail Crew, summer of 1955, in the Yosemite Sierra. I wrote this poem about putting away the hay for the winter for the stock, hay for the horses. He had driven half the night from far down San Joaquin through Mariposa up the dangerous mountain roads and pulled in at 8 a.m. with his big truckload of hay behind the barn. With winch and ropes and hooks, we stacked the bales up clean to splintery redwood rafters high in the dark, flecks of alfalfa whirling through shingle cracks of light, itch of hay dust in the sweaty shirt and shoes. At lunchtime under black oak, out in the hot corral, the old mare nosing lunch pails, grasshoppers crackling in the weeds. I'm 68, he said. I first bucked hay when I was 17. I thought that day I started, I sure would hate to do this all my life. And damn it, that's just what I've gone and done. That is my most anthologized poem. Everybody understands it. It's great. Kids understand it even. <laughs>